Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. This episode is almost six months in the making, and I'm delighted to finally bring you the fruits of a long-distance DIY cocktail project that I worked on with none other than my very own mother. Before we get to that, though, just two quick announcements. First, if you're in the DMV region, you'll have a bunch of opportunities over the next few weeks to come hang out with me and the rest of the Modern Bar Cart team live and in person at some great holiday markets here in the DC area. Every Saturday and Sunday between now and December 16th, 2018, we'll be hitting the road to bring you the very best holiday gifts for the cocktail lover in your life. On Saturday, December 1st, we'll be popping up at the Mosaic District for the Urban Market holiday pop-up. That takes place from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. in Fairfax, Virginia, and we'll be joined by a bunch of other great vendors there as well. And then on Sunday, December 2nd, we'll be live and in person at the Wundergarten, located in the Noma neighborhood of D.C., just a couple blocks from the Noma Metro stop. That's a red line stop. This is going to be our home base for the rest of the holiday season every Saturday and Sunday. So come and visit us anytime between noon and 8 p.m. for the next three Saturdays and Sundays. Grab a beer at the excellent indoor beer garden, sample our fantastic cocktail mixers, and check out our newest product releases, including our Shower Mule and Shower Negroni body bars. We hope to see you there. And the second announcement is that there's less than a week left of the Kickstarter campaign for the Essential Tasting Journal for Spirits and Cocktails. So if you want to be the first to receive your signed first edition copy, please head over to our Kickstarter page and pre-order yours ASAP. We'll have a link to that in the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And you can always get there by visiting cocktailtastingjournal.com as well. Thanks for being such a good listener during those announcements, and as a reward, I think it's time for you to make yourself a drink. This week's featured cocktail is a blast from the summery past. You remember summer, right? Well, in keeping with the subject of this episode, which is homemade fruit liqueurs, I wanted to feature perhaps the most iconic summer cocktail involving such an ingredient, and this is called the Whiskey Bramble. This drink, to be fair, can be enjoyed any time of year, but there's just something about the Whiskey Bramble that lends itself to front porch sipping on a warm summer evening. This drink contains an important ingredient, creme de mure, which, roughly translated from the French, means nectar of the woods. It's a French blackberry liqueur, and it's sort of the basis of the DIY project we talk about in this episode. To make a whiskey bramble, you'll need two ounces of whiskey, I like bourbon here, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, one half ounce of simple syrup, and three quarters of an ounce of creme de mure, which is that blackberry liqueur. This is a cocktail that you build right in the glass, and it's important to use 
crushed ice if possible. So what you do is you fill a nice double rocks glass with crushed ice. You add your whiskey, lemon juice, and simple syrup. Give that bad boy a quick stir. Then carefully drizzle the creme de mure over the top as a float. This drink, since it leans in the direction of a smash or a julep, can be garnished with any sort of fresh herbs or berries that you have available, but I like a sprig of mint and a blackberry skewered with a cocktail pick. So now that you've got a beautiful use case for the liqueur we'll spend this episode discussing, let's talk about how to take something that grows on a tree or a bush or a vine and turn that beautiful fruit into a delicious and extremely giftable homemade liqueur. In this interview with my mom, Sue Rose, some of the topics we discuss include how we picked our project and sourced the initial ingredients, what logistical steps to take to ensure that you produce a delicious and shelf-stable liqueur, how to determine which online recipes are legit and which are just in it for the Insta, thoughts on assorted topics like Armagnac, bricks, bottle design, and long-distance collaborations, and much, much more. Now, the one huge flaw of this project is that we trusted a faulty recipe at the beginning. So as we discuss the various steps to take when making a homemade liqueur, you'll notice that we don't offer actual measurements or quantities very often. At the end of the episode, I'll jump in and provide an approximate recipe for you to use. But in the meantime, I'd like you to focus on the process because that's really the value of this conversation. Listen to how we approach this project, see where we encountered roadblocks, how we responded, and then decide if a homemade fruit liqueur is something you might wanna try your hand at. If you wanna just get right to the recipe, of course, you can just roll over to the show notes page for this episode at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast where we'll have that recipe alongside pictures of our process at various phases. So you'll be able to kind of see what it looks like. And with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sue Rose detailing our mother-son DIY fruit liqueur project. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners and uh, just tell us how we got here today? Well, uh, so uh, my name is Sue Rose and I am your mom. And we got here today because we we both, I guess, like to do a little experimenting in the kitchen. Yours has become a lot more formal. We had a bumper crop of black raspberries this year, and I anticipated them being ready during one of your visits home. Unfortunately, they didn't ripen quite in time. Mm-hmm. So when you were here, you mentioned making a, ras- a black raspberry liqueur and you thought that would be a really cool fun experiment so i sort of volunteered to try to do that in your absence if the berries came out well enough we absolutely had a bumper crop they were fantastic and uh, so that's how the project got started yeah it was a bit of a wetter year and so i think things took a little bit longer to ripen this year but it seems like they got nice and big Nice and juicy, very sweet, right? The weather was cooler longer, and so that does make for more plump berries that have time to mature instead of when the heat hits, they get dry and small, and they aren't quite as nice. And so this is a, this is a black raspberry patch that I remember uh, that had been growing beside the driveway since I was a kid. And so I think 
it hits a couple things for me. It hits the, the nostalgia of walking down the driveway and picking a handful of these things and eating them. And it also hits my current interest in finding experiments for our listeners to do at home. And I think this might be maybe not the most extreme, but perhaps the most in-depth type of experiment that we've talked about so far on the podcast. So far, we've done things like fat washing spirits, like homemade syrups, with which this project shares a number of similarities that we're probably going to cover here. Uh, and we've done, you know, little infusions here and there. But I think a homemade liqueur is a little bit more complex and you got to do a few more things correctly to make it work out really well. And so that's kind of what I'd like to talk about here. And I'd like to start, besides the, the overview that we just gave, um, can you talk a little bit about what your background is with liqueurs in the past or with spirits in general? Just because I know that some of that informed your reactions and some of the maybe hesitations that you had during during the process. Sure. So I, I definitely do not have the breadth of experience that you have. I'd had very little experience with liqueurs, but that they're mostly fruit-based uh, was something that I found interesting and, and enjoyable. And I, I did think it would be a, a cool way to, if it worked out well, make some nice gifts um, that definitely had that homemade, um, I'm not necessarily a, a gourmet cook or a baker, but I thought this was something that I could make my own and have a homemade thing. But in terms of, uh, other than perhaps a, a grasshopper, which was a fancy cream de menthe uh, dessert many years ago, I just really didn't have any uh, any frame of reference to judge. And even with, with um, spirits, I just, I didn't have a lot of background. So to me, it just all smelled very just alcohol and boozy. Mostly a wine drinker? Mostly a wine drinker. That, okay. was, that was about it. Mm-hmm. So I think, as a result, it just seemed like initially, like you were like, okay, we'll do this. And then when we started getting into it, it seemed like there was just this big project sitting in front of you with no frame of reference. Well, ideally, it was going to be your project. You were going to take the berries home and do that. And then when that didn't work out, it turned out to be, uh, you know, I said, sure, let's let's try this. And but then in, at various steps, it got a little a little scary because I didn't have a, a complete frame of reference to point back to. Right. Yeah. Initially, I was going to come up for a visit. I had to, I had this visit time, and because it took things a little bit longer to ripen this year, it didn't work out. So our solution to that was kind of a phone and email collaboration where at various parts of the project, I would send you an email with some instructions or I would jump on the phone to answer a question while you were doing something. And we, we found this recipe or I found this recipe and it seemed at first glance with me never having done this before either, it seemed at first glance to be a pretty solid recipe and the pictures were nice. It seemed like there was some resources behind this recipe. And uh, long story short, the recipe didn't end up being so great. So I, I, we'll, we'll get into that, but um, can, we, can we walk people through this project from, I guess, the first step, which was gathering the materials? Right. So so basically what I told what I told you is I said, okay, we're going to be making something that is akin to a creme de mure. 
right? So I gave, I, I, I had this, this starting vision for what this was going to be. And a creme de mur is basically a blackberry liqueur that is very popular in French. It means cream of the blackberry uh, or nectar. More, more, a better translation would be nectar of the blackberry in the, same way, in the same way that creme de cassis is the nectar of the black currant. It's a very um, famous liqueur produced in the Burgundy region of France. So France has a pretty rich tradition of these berry liqueurs. And so I saw blackberry liqueur. We had black raspberries. So I said, let's make something akin to this blackberry liqueur in the French tradition. And so what I, what I asked you to do was go out and pick, some, pick up some ingredients that were traditional in the French way. And what I meant by that was, you know, when you're making a liqueur, you need alcohol. And so what I wanted to do was uh, use some grape-based vodka, which is the traditional type of alcohol that they would have been using in France. And then also kind of dub in some aged brandy as well, because when I when I did my initial research on creme de mur, they were using these aged brandies in there as well. There was a combination of eau de vie or like a, 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 a vodka essentially, an unaged, unflavored spirit, but then they were also dubbing in, in the recipe, something more along the lines of a cognac or an armagnac. So that's the initial ask that I made for you. So what happened when you went to pick up these products? Well, so that was the first challenge. So, um, you know, there's different brands. We went to a, uh, a regional uh, store that was well known for a good selection and a quality product. Um, I didn't just try to go to the local liquor store, but uh, then, you know, it was kind of overwhelming to see all of the different options. The price points varied wildly. And so I, you know, again, it was, it, we were doing this together, but I, I really was trying to make a good product to sort of bring your vision out. And it was, it was really challenging to, to try to figure that out. And I think even at that point, we might've been trying to communicate a little bit by phone, but you gave me some good advice, which was to uh, don't look for the fancy bottle and don't necessarily buy the most expensive. So with that, we were, I had actually settled on a cognac that I thought fit the bill took one more glance up and down the aisle and came back and grabbed the bottle I thought I wanted. And then I got home, panicked again, because it turned out I had picked up an Armagnac. Mm -hmm. And I thought I had made a mistake, but I said, well, we'll go back and return it. And when I told you, you were actually very excited because that was more true to the actual uh, making of that product. Right. Armagnac is made in a similar style as Cognac. And it's from a region that's pretty much adjacent to Cognac in France. So it's, you know, just like the Champagne region or the Burgundy region or the Bordeaux region. This also applies to spirits in France. They have this very long tradition and it's very geographically oriented. And the thing that distinguishes Armagnac from Cognac is that it's made in a more traditional kind of rustic alembic still. And the result is that you get more of the character of the base grain, or in, in this case, the base fruit, because it's a grape. And then, of course, there's the entire aging process that each producer has their own specific style. So th there's a lot of uh, rustic nuance is the way that I would, I would describe 
Armagnac, and there's a great book. We did a book review recently. It's called By the Smoke and the Smell by an author called Thad Vogler, based in San Francisco. And he has a really lovely explication of Armagnac and Cognac and, and some of these beautiful brandy regions in France. So if anyone's interested in learning more about Armagnac or Cognac, check out that book review. Head on over to the show notes page at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Listen to the episode and definitely, if you're interested, pick up that book by Thad Vogler. It's a great reference for that particular spirit. But getting back to the liqueur, basically what we, what we knew we needed to pick up were these spirits because a liqueur is... is essentially a fortified syrup. You're taking sweet in the form of some sort of sugar. You're taking a flavor in usually in the form of a fruit or perhaps in some cases an herb or a root or a bark. And you're infusing that flavor into that sugar syrup and you're using the alcohol for two things. One, to provide alcohol because alcohol is nice and two, to preserve it. Alcohol was one of the few stabilizers that people had access to starting in the mid to late Middle Ages. And so it was a great way to preserve certain things and it was used heavily as a medicinal remedy throughout throughout Europe, especially during, during the late Middle Ages and through the Renaissance and beyond. So that's essentially what we were doing. We had our fruit in the black raspberries that we picked and then Using my idea of this creme de mure imitation, we picked up traditional ingredients that we could access at our local liquor store that were somewhat similar to that. So let's walk through the process after the ingredients. What happened then? So um, after that, we we started with just some basic uh, clean mason jars and we mashed the fruit we so we we got our ratios of of how much fruit and how much alcohol of each type we would need for each jar we mashed the fruit to sort of bring out the the juices and we we placed a certain amount of mashed fruit in each jar and uh, some lemon peel Mm -hmm. and some cloves and just the the lemon peel was just whole peel and the cloves were just whole cloves and they were just dumped in and then into each jar we added the appropriate amount of the combination of both alcohols and then we um, sealed those jars we we got all the way done in fact one actually didn't quite have the right balance we we were off by a couple of mls of of one of of the uh, the vodka and uh, it turned out fine but it was just the fruit the, the lemon, the cloves, and the alcohol sealed tightly in a mason jar. And it, it turned out, based on the time I had to do this, that I couldn't really get back to this for a couple of weeks. And so I was also a little bit worried about that, just my time availability to go from start to finish. And, you know, you really felt that this wasn't going to be a problem. I, I packed the jars into a box, uh, just kind of kept them out of the direct heat and light, and just let them sit for a couple of weeks. So um, then we opened them up, and the next step was then, uh, in the meantime, some bottles and some cheesecloth magically arrived at my home, compliments of the online shopping world. And so then we had the the big next step, or the big next two steps were going to be the straining and then the adding of the the sugar to try to get it to the right place. Right. So... A couple points that I that I want to make about that first step that I think are really important and that might actually help people decide to take the dive here. Uh, the one point is that 
you didn't have to do this all in one run, which I think is not typical of a project of this sort. Usually if you're making a syrup or if you're doing any other sort of complicated cooking project in the kitchen, usually you're making it, if not all in one run, you're making it all in one day, sort of. And so the first step of making a fruit flavored liqueur is, is really making a fruit infused vodka or spirit. And the nice thing is when you put that fruit in that spirit and you just let it sit there and infuse, there's really no risk of anything going wrong. And, and with, a, with a fruit, really the only risk you have in the extraction process is cutting things off before you start extracting like bitter things or some of the stuff that you, the flavors that you don't wanna extract. So with certain flavored liqueurs, you might be at risk for like a time sensitive extraction period, but because we were just using these beautiful sweet berries, there really wasn't anything that we had to worry about extracting in terms of bad flavors in there. So we could kind of let that sit as long as it, as it needed to, which, which is a nice bit of flexibility, especially because we were producing this at scale. The second thing I wanted to say before moving on to the, the sugar and the, the, the sweetening aspect of this project is that I'm gonna provide on the show notes page for this episode a scaled recipe that approximates what we did because I can't in good faith give you guys the link to the recipe that we started with because as I'll let you explain in a second, it didn't work out. So I'm going to take kind of a hybrid approach, explain what we would have ideally done as a recipe and then then give you guys kind of the the, the full uh, utilitarian version of that after um, we had kind of made our mistakes and corrected them on our end. Uh, So we'll hear about that in just a second. Uh, But the last thing I wanted to say about the extraction process of extracting the, the, the flavor of those berries is that you used just regular mason jars, right? Mm hmm. So the size of the vessel will also sort of affect your ability to extract things. So if you were to use, like we use for our bitters, we use these nice big five, five to seven gallon wide mouth glass carboys that are traditionally used in home brewing. But the smaller the vessel that you're using to extract, the more quickly your extraction is gonna play, take place. So you use these uh, one liter mason jars for the most part. You had a couple of different sizes in the mix, but you know if you shake each of those once or twice a day, you could probably get away with you doing a three-day turnaround on your extract. Whereas if you're using, if you were making a large batch of this liqueur and you were using these very large vessels, then I might recommend a longer extraction period. And the reason for that is simply surface area. The more surface area of the ingredients is in contact with the molecules of the alcohol, the quicker the extraction is going to be. And when you have everything in a very large vat, uh, it follows the same principles as barrel aging. There's going to be less molecules in contact with that at, at, at one time. And so it's just going to take a little bit longer to extract the larger vessel you have it in. So that's just a quick pro tip. But let's bring us to the uh, the sweetening aspect of this process. Uh, well, so before uh, even sweetening, we had to strain. So we had to take everything out of each individual mason jar that it had been settling in and, and the flavor was extracting in, and we had to get it back into one large container um, so that we could then heat it, add the sugar, and, and finish it ready for bottling. So the, um, the straining process was, um, I, I will advise, the messiest. 
So I used this uh, cheesecloth and I used several layers of cheesecloth and a strainer. So basically I took, it was a fairly fine uh, pot type strainer. I could lay right over the pot. I laid the cheesecloth inside the strainer, poured each bottle into the, to the cheesecloth in sort of a, a, a crisscross shape, bundled it all up and just squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed until nothing left came out and repeat about a dozen jars times that. So that's, uh, it, it took a while. Uh, and uh, after the first batch, I decided to use rubber gloves so that my hands weren't purple for the rest of the week. Sure. But other than that, you, you know, you repeated a couple of times to watch for the sediment. Uh, I don't know how we got away with it, but there was really very little sediment in the batch. It came out nice and clear. And so once all the jars were strained into a large pot, then it was time to start adding the sugar, warming it to get the sugar to dissolve. And we, we were trying to be careful to make this uh, stable. So we wanted to have enough sugar in it to A, be sufficiently sweet as the product should, B, to be shelf stable so that it could be you know, something that would be available to, to people once they open the bottle for a while. And that was something, again, I had very little uh, or no uh, experience with. So we tried a scale. Uh, the scale that we had didn't seem to have the right measurements in order to, to get to the fine point we wanted to. And based on the original recipe, and I, I don't honestly remember the exact uh, requirements, but we had done some calculations. And uh, that was probably the part that got the most complicated. And we so we started heating it and adding the sugar and adding to recipe. and. It, you know, you, you were guiding me with, uh, you, were, you were using words to give me visual cues, and I was just not coming to what I thought was that meaning. And uh, so we in used... In terms of the thickness of in, this? In terms of the consistency. You, you know, you kept suggesting that the ideal thickness was a little thinner than a cough syrup. And I was just adding sugar and stirring, and I was getting nothing but just watery liquid and worried that uh, we were going way past what it should have been. But eventually I, I added enough sugar and it seemed to finally hit that right consistency. And once it did, um, it, 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 was, it, it was like adding uh, water to cornstarch if you've ever done that. You add a couple drops, nothing happens. You add some more, nothing happens. And then you add one more drop and you would instantly get the right consistency and, and dissolution of the, of the cornstarch. This was the same way with the sugar. I just added one more cup of sugar and instantly the entire mix came to the right consistency. Mm -hmm. So I felt pretty comfortable at that point. There's a couple really good lessons about what you were saying, and I'll start with something that you glossed over, and we got lucky on this respect, and I think it's probably because of the number of layers of cheesecloth that you used, but this word sediment is an important one when you want to create something that is shelf stable. And, and this is the part, this is what we're really gonna focus on in this part of the conversation, because with a liqueur, you're, you're doing a couple important things with the sugar, one, when you dissolve this sugar into the solution, you're binding up water molecules that might otherwise be available to play host to something like a bacteria or a mold or some other microorganism that might sneak its way into there and cause trouble. And that's something that's called water activity. And whenever you're talking to somebody who's making an acidified product or something that they want to be shelf stable, they're always trying to minimize their water activity. And that's kind of what you're doing when you're adding 
sugar to this water. So it's binding to those water molecules and making them unavailable to host those bad microorganisms. Now, another thing that you're doing when you're adding sugar is you're adding something in there that bacteria and some of these other microorganisms like to eat. Some bacteria don't like it and some really like to munch on it. Now in a liqueur, you've got the presence of alcohol in a fairly significant percentage. Uh, and unfortunately, because of uh, how much trial and error and guess and check we did with this recipe, we, we are not able to furnish the end ABV at this point. But if, if I'm able to get it to a, a piece of equipment where I can measure it, I'll certainly go in in the show notes and, and uh, update that at that point. But the, the point that I wanted to make about sediment is, is that is sort of the other rogue agent in an end product that can result in some bad after effects. Because if you have sediment in there, sediment is another type of thing that can be a vector for this bacteria or whatever it, microorganism it might be that you wanna keep out of your product. So the more effectively you can filter that sediment out, A, the clearer and more beautiful your product is gonna be, B, you're gonna get a better mouthfeel and there's not gonna be any sediment in your cocktails that's gonna affect the mouthfeel. And, and C, you can be more confident about the ability to inhibit the growth of these, these bad microorganisms. Uh, now with liqueurs, it's way easier and you can have way more confidence than with simple syrups, which are basically just a liquid Petri dish if you don't treat them correctly. But yes, so this is, long story short, this is why I was concerned about sediment and this is why you were so concerned about the thickness and consistency of the syrup, right? Right. Now, when we're talking about sugar and water, or sugar in a solution, this is measured by something called bricks. And hopefully, I will be able to put together a really in-depth episode just focusing on bricks in the future, because it really is something that brewers, distillers, winemakers, and people who make, you know, type of product that we're talking about today really focus on. It's a big part of their life, but it's all about limiting that water activity. So if you see something about bricks, if you hear someone talking about bricks, really what they're trying to do is they're trying to increase the amount of sugar that's in that solution to limit that water activity. So the problem that we were encountering, I think, is twofold. One, there was alcohol. And alcohol messes bricks all up. So there, there's a bricks, there's a way to measure bricks without alcohol in the equation. But when alcohol gets added to the equation, it complicates matters. The other thing was it was hot. We were heating this because we wanted to bottle it hot. And this is something that I recommend that you do. And so when a liquid is is heated, the molecules naturally are going to be in a more excited state. And uh, the liquid is going to seem thinner. So I think one of the other things to keep in mind when you're doing a project like this is, yes, you definitely want to get to a point where you're seeing that thickening. But I, I think uh, one takeaway from, from your experience that you're describing is don't necessarily get nervous if things aren't as thick as you think they should be, because correct me if I'm wrong, but in the bottle, it did seem to thicken up a little bit once it cooled. It did. It, it definitely thickened more than it was in the pot. Um, I, I think my one of my fears was that it was exactly that, that it was very warm and that I was afraid that once I poured it, 
once it cooled to temperature, that I was going to have something that was more like a gel as opposed to a, a, just a, a nice, consistently thick liquid. Um, I think we were just super lucky that um, it, it came out exactly the way I think we were aiming for. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's thick, but not, um, not syrupy. Right. So talk about the bottles. Uh, how, how did you prep the bottles uh, and, and did you do anything special to make sure that those were sanitized? Well, so, I mean, you know, this is a home kitchen. So aside from taking basic cleaning measures just to not, you know, make sure nothing contaminated anything that shouldn't, um, in particular, because the bottles uh, were going to be used, hopefully be able to be around for a long time without problems. Um, and I had some history. Uh, my my parents did a lot of canning and food prep, so this was not new to me. So we ran the bottles through a dishwasher, just a, a regular household dishwasher, and left them in there. Uh, we did it right before we were ready to bottle. We left them in there until it was time to bottle. Uh, again, this was also a pretty messy part, so a little bit of uh, preventive uh, protection for your 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 furniture or counter is a good idea. But we, we basically just ladled it out of the hot pot into, we, uh, we uh, put the funnel, we knew we'd need a funnel because these are small necked bottles. So we um, placed the funnel in with the, uh, with the bottles in the dishwasher, so made sure that was nice and clean, and just ladled from the hot pot right into the, the still warm bottles out of the dishwasher in the funnel and just kind of came right up to the neck or you know about two thirds up the neck of the bottle and then it you know wiped them down there was a little bit of dripping so we wiped them down as best we can uh, sealed them immediately and then just let them off to the side to set quietly without moving them around too much for the next day or so mm-hmm. and these bottles are for the folks listening at home we'll, we'll post some pictures up on the show notes page of course but these are 250 milliliter swing top bottles and a swing top is basically one of those little things. It's, it's like a little white uh, ceramic top with a rubber O-ring gasket. And you kind of situate that gasket right on the opening or the mouth of the bottle. And then you push down on a lever and it clamps it down. And the nice thing about these swing top bottles is that when you bottle it hot, it's not officially like a canned, like a mason jar, if you've ever seen a a well canned mason jar where it's got that complete hermetic seal. But when as as the liquid cools, it does form a really solid seal. So I, I that's why I recommended that you bottle these hot, even if they're not going to be completely pasteurized. And then the other thing that I'll recommend is uh, where to source these bottles from, of course. And uh, we use a company called Specialty Bottle. Uh, it's based out of Seattle, they ship throughout the United States, and they're, they're pretty reasonable. So uh, we'll, we'll include a link to the bottles that we used and, and the specialty bottle website in general uh, in the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. But uh, I think these bottles were a good size for it because you tend to use a liqueur a little bit less uh, in terms of volume than you, than you would a spirit. It's a really good gifting size. You can hold it right in the palm of your hand. And um, the the last thing, I guess, uh, do you want to talk about the, the the labeling that we ended up doing? Uh, well, that was fun. Um, so I, first off, I did want to say that I really do like the bottles. the The particular character of these bottles is a little bit rustic, and it really felt to me like it was the right bottle that should go with this type of liqueur. 
and you know they were homegrown berries and this is very much a home style looking and product so i like that um the labels uh, this was you know is another a little bit of a challenging part to our tag team effort um, you ordered the labels which you designed and you sort of gave that nice little background on what the the spirit actually is um, which is super useful because I would like to give them as gifts and I know very well that the people that I may give them to won't have the same if I just say here's a bottle of black raspberry liqueur they're not necessarily going to know what to do with that but you put enough information on the back um, that you can you know you have it actually as something you'd sip you could have it over desserts you could do a lot of different things with it and so that made it instantly more useful and more user-friendly um, but the labels didn't fit all that well <laughs> Uh, because of the, it was in part because of the cool shape of the bottle, uh, didn't lend itself to the square label. So we did a little home customizing on the labels too, but uh, in which just sort of continued to lend itself to the homemade product. Uh, but it was okay. Right. Yeah. I, I had never purchased these bottles before, and so when they arrived, the back ended up being a little bit concave, and the front ended up in most cases being a little bit convex, and there were a couple little uh, raised ridges as an adornment, and although I did design the labels to fit the dimensions of the bottle, as those dimensions were listed on the site, it wasn't a completely flat dimension, and so as a result, uh, the labels needed a little bit of customizing. And also, just to describe the, the bottle a little bit more, it almost looks like a maple syrup bottle, uh, like a flat flask style yes. maple syrup bottle that you can hold exactly. in the palm of your hand. Exactly. So um, I think at this point, I should say that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say it in the intro, but I also want to reiterate that if you do a homemade liqueur project, this is not something that, that you should... I think in any case, in any state, expect to just be able to sell at a farmer's market. These things are intended 100% for home consumption and gifting to people, friends, and family. Just like home distilling is illegal, selling products that were not manufactured with the correct licensing is illegal. So while I would recommend homemade liqueurs as a great stepping stone to a possible career doing this, uh, please do look into the laws in your state. If you do a project like this, please, please, please make sure that you're adhering to the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, and also the spirit of just making a good product. So uh, definitely review some of our recipe recommendations over on the show notes page and uh, just just take care when you do this stuff and make sure that you're, you know, you have a keen eye on things like sterilization and, and bricks and the quality of the ingredients that your sourcing. So at this point, we've got the bottles, we've got the labels, we have the end product that we were initially a little bit nervous about and that we uh, sort of had to tweak once we realized that the, the recipe we were using probably didn't have nearly as much sugar as it needed to get it up to the correct bricks. But we persevered, we got all the ingredients, we got more sugar, and you bottled it. And now it's Thanksgiving. This was the first time that I came home and got to try it. Uh, what are your thoughts on the end product? Well, I, I was just for that exact reason, I was very anxious. Uh, you know, there was a, a couple things made me anxious. One was the size of the batch we made. In my exuberance over the large amount of berries we had, 
I wanted to make a big batch and it turns out you don't need all that many berries to make even a, a good size batch. So we made probably more than I would have been comfortable with, but I was going on your experience and your background of making larger batches. So um, that, I, you know, you, you helped me get past that hesitation. But again, I was just afraid that we had spent a lot of time and a lot of money to make something that wasn't what I was hoping it would be. Fortunately, it turned out that I was completely wrong. It turned out to be uh, a delicious product. It was uh, not, for, for all of the sugar that I know went into that, it was not sweet. I was afraid that it would be sicky, syrupy sweet. It was, the, the flavor of the berries came out very nicely. I, I particularly am fond of the color. I think it's an absolutely gorgeous color. Um, and I think, you know, we, we all had it over vanilla ice cream at Thanksgiving. Everybody seemed to think that was pretty good. Um, I can imagine it as a topping on a cheesecake. I can imagine it, um, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the drink with the uh, sparkling white wine, the Kier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of these days, I would like to try that with it. And um, it, it, all in all, it, it came out terrific. I was thrilled. Yeah. So when I first tasted it, uh, I was maybe not disappointed because I really didn't come in with any sort of expectation for what this flavor was going to be. I don't even have all that much experience with creme de mure. But one of the things that I, I, I did notice was that it, it seemed to be a little bit less tangy than I was expecting. Black raspberries, I would put on the spectrum of between blackberries and, and red raspberries, I'd say that they were a little bit, they should be a little bit tangier than red raspberries perhaps, but not as tangy as a blackberry. So I was looking for a little bit of that tang and initially I didn't get it. What was nice is that the lemon peel and the clove that we put in the initial infusion with the berry pulp did seem to come through. So I was happy that those came through, that they weren't overpowering, that they, they made it for a balanced flavor. But what I did notice is that, so we opened this one bottle here on the night before Thanksgiving, and then we poured little, little shots and we, we took some sips and we declared it a success. And then when we took that same bottle that had already been opened over to our Thanksgiving dinner and we, we served it over the ice cream, I got that acidity again. So I, I don't know as much about letting a liqueur breathe. And it, you know, when you taste spirits like whiskeys or brandies, it's always recommended uh, that you let it breathe in the same way that you might want to let a fine wine breathe. So just an interesting thing that I found that was, that was rather pleasant for me is that I found at least one aspect of it to be lacking initially, but then it had the opportunity to open up and, and I found that that characteristic indeed was there. So that was my happy reaction to the whole thing. So any, any other bits of advice or uh, things that you want to impart to our listeners uh, before, before we sign off here? Well, um, it was fun. It was something I would try again. The The one thing that if I were doing this completely on my own, and honestly, I'm not even sure I would have had the courage to do it completely on my own, but the one thing that I found was invaluable was a, a good source of information before you set out on this. I, I've done this with regular recipes where I've looked online and you get a couple of different opinions and that that one odd flyer that seems different from the others might not be the one you should go with on your first try you want to you want to kind of go with something tried and true the first pass um, to make sure you come up with something fairly successful 
and uh, second, have a resource available. You know, I, in fact, I think I checked back on one of your old podcasts for, I don't remember which one right now, but I pulled the podcast up just to check what I was doing. So little things like that, especially resources and, uh, and a guide. You know, if you've got a friend who's tried this along the way, absolutely use their, their experience and expertise. Um, and don't be afraid to fail, although in my world, I might have tried a smaller batch if I was going to really try to wing this on my own. Yeah, I think I might have been a little bit overconfident in our abilities here. Uh, if you're doing this at home, I would recommend starting at the single mason jar level, especially because that can be easily done with a, a single trip to the to the produce stand or the farmer's market, and you get one little pint of whatever your berry or your fruit is, and, and that's where you start. So uh, really good advice. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat about the process and uh, let's, uh, let's go and try some. Absolutely, looking forward to it. Okay, so now that we know the process to make a fruit liqueur in general, let's talk recipes. Please do keep in mind that this is an approximate recipe and if you're going to try your liqueur with a different fruit base, you might wanna choose different spirits or tweak the sugar a bit. Remember, use this as a guideline and customize to your taste and your desired end product. That said, here's our scaled recipe. We used one liter of vodka, 375 ml bottle of cognac or armagnac, that's one of those like half bottles, six cups of black raspberries, the peels of three lemons, and six cloves. This is gonna yield your fruit-infused spirit mixture, to which you'll need to add a decent amount of sugar. We'll get to that in a second. But the overall output for our infusion using the ingredients above was about four liters of liquid, which is going to vary wildly in both volume and ABV, depending on how much liquid your fruit adds to the mixture. Remember, we mentioned that it was a really wet year and these Black raspberries were just absolutely bursting with juice, so there's a lot of liquid added from the fruit in our case. That might not be the same for your project, so just keep an eye on that. Then, talking about the sugar, we added about three cups of water and roughly nine to 12 cups of sugar, which is almost like a triple rich simple syrup, if you think about it, um, but remember we were adding it to a mixture that already contained water and alcohol. So in the end, it wasn't like adding a triple rich simple syrup. It was just getting that liqueur up to a consistency where we could be confident that the bricks was high enough and the water activity was low enough. I know it sounds like a lot of sugar, but as you heard during the episode, it was necessary. The end yield for this project was about 32 250 ml bottles or eight liters of liqueur. So based on that, expect your liquid volume to increase anywhere between 50 and 100% when you add the sugar and the water to your fruit infused spirit. Of course, if you have any questions about this, you can always drop us an email at podcast at modernbarcart.com and we'll be happy to give you a hand with any questions that you have. I know some of these DIY projects can be complicated, but we're always here for you and we wanna make sure that you can have fun with it and then produce a product that you're proud of. That's it for this episode. So until next time, remember, 
keep your bricks up and your water activity down. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, a bumper crop of black raspberries from a patch that has been in action since my youth, hands-on mashing, straining, and fortifying, courtesy of Sue Rose, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.